Well, good evening. It's a joy to be with you tonight. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. The hymns that we sang tonight were um, particularly fitting, and uh, I, I was um, thinking earlier this afternoon, without, without having forgotten what, what hymns we were going to sing tonight, um, that we ought to sing May the Mind of Christ my Savior, and then I heard Lisa playing it, and uh, it was already in there. Well, you may know or you may not know, Sarah Thomas um, selects uh, many of the hymns that we sing, and she does a wonderful job um, uh, thinking about the text that we'll be reading and looking at, and then thinking about hymns where the lyrics uh, match that. And so I, um, I simply want to honor that. And, and, and uh, if you next time you see her, thank her for that service. It, it is a wonderful service to select hymns that reinforce what we uh, hear and read from God's Word. Well, in Philippians, we're going to look at the whole of this letter from the Apostle Paul tonight. And um, what I want to do right now simply is to read uh, verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. And that will, um, that will present to us the uh, primary uh, message, if you will, or the main or the, uh, theme that we find in this letter. And then we'll um, look at the broader letter and actually read quite a few of the texts in Philippians. Fortunately, it's quite uh, short, and so it, it won't take us long to read many of these texts. But in any case, if you find your place in Philippians 1.27, I'll read from there to verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father in heaven, as we look at this word from Philippians tonight, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds to impress the truths therein, uh, upon us. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to see wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ as we consider the examples that are set before us in this letter so that we might be a people who live obediently to your word by conf- uh, letting our lives be conformed by your power to the gospel of Christ so that we might live lives that indeed qualify in terms of what we read here that we might live lives that are, that is to say, worthy of the gospel of Christ through unity, through humility, through faithful service, and through perseverance and endurance. This, we know, Lord, is something that you must work in us, and you do promise to continue to completion the work that you've begun in us and to will and to work for your good pleasure in us. So as we pursue this aim, may we do it fully trusting in you and in the grace that you provide. Form us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in that text that I read, you picked up on the language of conflict that Paul spoke about. The conflict that he himself was engaged in and still engaged in, and conflict that, he, uh, that the Philippians shared with him. You also, I hope, uh, picked up on the language of a partnership, uh, a partnership in the gospel, which is the uh, title of our sermon, Partners in the Gospel, as we consider Philippians. He didn't use that language in this particular text, but the concept was surely there as he called the Philippians to let their lives be conformed to the gospel of Christ, whether he was with them or whether he was absent. And that confirmation would look at that that conformity to Christ's uh, image and the conformity to the gospel could be characterized in terms like standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and uh, unafraid Uh, of opponents, they would be persevering as well. This is the life to which Paul calls the Philippians in this letter because he wants them to see themselves as partners with him in the work of the gospel. And that's the idea that is before us uh, tonight that we're called to as well as a church. We are called to be partners in the gospel. We're going to consider then what that means. I want you to think of a few images though to start with. And what might challenge um, these 
the, the, as we consider these images, we're going to consider groups and teams that, where people partner together for an end, and consider the things that might challenge or undermine that goal of partnership. You can think of a sports team. You can think of a unit in the military. You can even think of an entire nation. And in all of these pictures and all of these images that you might hold in your mind, those uh, groups of people will find success where there is unity of purpose and unity of mind, where there is a unity um, where they're striving together for a single aim. And so you can think, for example, back to the time of the Second World War, when the whole nation rallied behind the purpose of winning that war. And so you could uh, see that young men were enlisting in the military and going overseas to fight that war. You could see that uh, women who are still on the home front were engaging in various duties and taking uh, along, uh, upon themselves the jobs that were normally being performed by men in that time so that industry could continue. You see that children would be going around the neighborhood gathering tinfoil and certain things in order to support that single-minded effort that the nation focused upon. You can think of a team that strives together in an athletic competition and they pursue a common goal of winning a championship or of achieving some other uh, uh, goal. And you can think of a military unit that is, has a mission that they're to perform and they work together according to their various gifts, according to their various callings, according to the various assignments and their duties and their training to accomplish a common effort. And in all of those cases, their success, whether it's the sports team, whether it's a military or whether it's a nation, the success that they uh, hope for depends upon their unity. And so you can see then that their success would be undermined where there is division, where there is rivalry, where people are putting their own personal goals ahead of the goals of others. You can think, for instance, of uh, on a sports team, if one player is more interested in his own personal accolades, his own personal records, if he's interested in getting the next contract or something like that, or what he looks like on the news report that night, he might undermine the success of his team in order to achieve his own personal success. In the military, if someone was concerned primarily with saving his own life, he might undermine the success of the mission in order to achieve that goal, rather than putting himself at risk and sacrificing for the greater good of that unit. And you can see the same thing in a nation. If you think of a, perhaps a political leader who pursues his own selfish interests to enrich himself or some other thing where he engages in acts of corruption rather than pursuing the good of the nation. And so, again, because he is not focused on unity and uh, that's rooted in humility, he undermines that great and important work that he is called to perform. Pride and rivalries evidence this kind of division. Pride and rivalries lead to that kind of problem. And that's the problem that, in some ways, is facing the Philippian church, as Paul writes to them. The problem of pride and rivalry is, it threatens to undermine their partnership in the gospel. And so Paul writes to them, acknowledging the reality of pride and rivalry, both in his life, it's confronting him where he is, and it's confronting the Philippians in their lives. And in that, as he writes, he acknowledges that God is going to be glorified regardless. God is going to accomplish his good purposes regardless. And so, for instance, as Paul will face pride and rivalries, he can rejoice that Christ is proclaimed in any case and that the gospel is going forth. And yet, at the same time, he wants better things for the Philippians. He wants better things for them, and I suggest to you that he wants better things for us as well. That's what we're going to see then as we read through large portions of this text. And so what I want to do is to begin by reading through verse 1 through 18. And we'll, I'll make just brief comments to summarize and give you uh, a, a concept. But, but hopefully that helps to uh, anchor your thoughts as, as we read through this text to think about uh, what Paul is saying in this letter to this Philippian church. As he calls them to this gospel partnership that is marked by unity, that is marked by humble service that is marked by steadfast faith and perseverance. Look at verse 3 in chapter 1. Paul writes to the Philippians concerning his prayers for them, both thanksgiving and the requests that he makes for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why does Paul pray like this? Verse 5 tells us, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul recognizes that the Philippians were partners with him in the work of proclaiming the gospel. And he'll say something about that later in chapter 4, as he acknowledges that this is the only church that actually uh, put money on the line, financially partnering with him uh, from the very beginning of his work of proclaiming the gospel in Macedonia and beyond. And there, in verse 6 then, he declares his confidence concerning these Philippians, who started so well. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here is a major idea that Paul is confident because God is the one who began the good work in them, and God finishes what he started. And he'll finish what he started at the day of Christ's return, at the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul declares his confidence that God began, because God began the work, he's going to complete the work that he's begun. He says in verse 7 then, going on, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. There's that idea of partnership again. They're partakers with him of grace. What does he mean by that? He explains both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Why? What's the basis for that claim? That they have partnered with him in his defense of the gospel and his uh, apologetic for the gospel and in his imprisonment and his suffering. He says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, what Paul seems to be saying when he says, for God is my witness in verse 8, is that his affection for and desire for the Philippians is, it matches what they've demonstrated toward him in his imprisonment and in the difficulty that he's experiencing at this time in his life. We don't know exactly where he is and what's going on. I think he's probably in Rome in the early 60s in prison. And there's this mutual sharing with one another, even though they're not technically in prison with him there, there, there. There's a desire, a mutual desire for one another that Paul characterizes as a partnership, a, 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 uh, a sharing, a part, they're partakers with him of grace, both in this situation of suffering where he continues to experience the grace of God, and so do they, and also in that gospel work of defending and confirming uh, the gospel that Paul preaches. It's a little bit of a strange thing and hard, hard to understand, but the basic idea is then simple. The Philippians have been working with Paul, and they have been promoting what Paul is doing. They've been helping Paul even from a distance. We'll see a specific example of how they've done that later on with Epaphroditus. But they've supported Paul in this ministry that he has. And so, too, he has also uh, pr been praying for them. He desires to be with them again. He has been praying that God would work in them. And so there's this mutual sharing in the work that they're commonly engaged in. And so Paul prays then to that end, that they might continue to uh, approve what is excellent, that they might be found pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ unto the glory of God. This is how Paul prays for the Philippians, both with gratitude and with prayers that God would continue to work in them. As he said, he prays that he, he's confident that God will finish what he started in their lives. He gives some, uh, some, some uh, idea of what he, what he anticipates that will look like as God causes them to abound in the fruit of righteousness. And as he um, turns then his attention from that prayer... He turns his attention to his own situation to give us a, a, a better sense of what's going on. And we're going to continue to see this theme come up again and again of what it looks like to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, to live uh, as someone who really truly is partnering in the work of the gospel. Here Paul is going to focus on his own experience and particularly he's going to focus on his own uh, mentality towards his experience. This is going to be very important as the letter unfolds because one of the primary ways that Paul makes his argument in Philippians is by way of example. He holds forth examples, both his own example 
the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and the example, most importantly, of Christ Jesus himself. And all of these examples, uh, then they, they, they give us the picture that we need to know what will look like if we're living faithfully as partners in the gospel, if we are living lives that are worthy of the gospel, which is what Paul is acknowledging in his prayer with gratitude and also praying that it might continue. Now he's going to give us then examples, starting with his own life, and he'll return to his own mentality. Look at verse 12, and I'll read there to verse 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We'll stop there in the middle of verse 8 for the moment. And I want to verse 18, excuse me, and I want to say something about what Paul is expressing here. Paul wants the Philippians to know something about his situation, and I find it just interesting to consider that when he first preached the gospel in Philippi, as we can read in Acts 16, it was a very similar situation. He was imprisoned because uh, he had exercised a demon from a girl who was engaged in, in some kind of uh, fortune-telling, and, and this was a very profitable endeavor for um, the, the men who managed her, and they lost their, uh, their profit maker, in a sense, because of Paul's work. And so they had him hauled off and tossed into prison. And yet, while he was in prison, an angel, uh, uh, excuse me, an uh, earthquake, um, broke, broke free the doors, and, um, and they had their chance to depart, but they did not. And through that whole turn of events, the Philippian jailer uh, came to faith as he bore witness to what had happened. And so in that example in Philippi, you see something very similar to what he's saying about his current situation, that though he was in prison and though he suffered, it worked out for the advance of the gospel in Philippi. Well, so we're seeing the same thing in Paul's current situation, where people, even the jailers, even the people in prison, the guard, they're hearing the gospel. And some are believing, and the, 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 he says most of the brothers are becoming confident in the Lord because of what Paul is enduring for the sake of the gospel and because even though he's enduring these trials, the gospel continues to go forth. This is Paul's mindset. This is what he's glad about. He's, he's enduring great suffering, but it, it's, not, it's no, no major thing to him. What he's concerned about is the advance of the gospel. And even there are challenges coming internally as members of that, this Christian community, if, if it perhaps is in Rome, uh, the men, members of the Roman church, some of them are engaged in preaching the gospel, but their motives are not so pure. They're preaching for envy, for rivalry. We see this kind of thing in our own day. There are people who go out and would seek to make themselves preachers of the gospel, whether through uh, social media or the internet or in other places, or they might even go into churches and seek to take over in some way. But they're doing it because they want to be front and center and they want uh, pride of place. They want the praise of others. They're doing it out of envy and rivalry to afflict Paul, in this case, in his imprisonment. That doesn't mean all the those who go out preaching the gospel are like that in his context, as he acknowledges. Some are doing it out of goodwill, but others are doing it to afflict him, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. From Paul's vantage point, he's, he's just glad that Christ is being proclaimed either way. He's just glad that the gospel is being preached either way. But we'll see that in the case of the Philippians, he would rather that they do it in sincerity and with goodwill, that they're engaged in this work in a way where their lives conform to the gospel that they proclaim. This is Paul's mindset, and we'll see that, that, that he continues to demonstrate this mindset in what he writes afterward. He says, picking up then in the middle, uh, towards the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I should choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as you see, as Paul thinks about his context and his situation, considers the possibility that this might lead to his death by way of execution, he, in some sense, would rather prefer that. In some sense, he recognized it would be better to, to die and to go to heaven and to be present with Christ. Better for him, that is. And yet, with respect to the Philippians, he recognizes that for them it is better if he stays and continues to do what he's been doing, that is laboring for the sake of the gospel to build them up and to encourage them and to, uh, to, to um, increase their joy and their faith to help them to progress in this way. So he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is fruitful labor on behalf of Christ. To die is gain because then I go to be with Christ. This is what the, the, the kind of thinking that informs Paul's mindset. It's the kind of thinking that, um, that, that is characteristic of one who is focused on the work of the gospel and who is focused on what the, what the gospel actually proclaims, eternal life with Christ. That's what we look for in the hope that we have, and yet we put aside our desires, we put aside what we want, and we labor for the good of others. That's what Paul's calling the Philippians to do and to embrace that kind of ethic and that kind of mindset, as he says to them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are doing what? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He wants them to be steadfast. He wants them to be united. He wants them to labor for the sake of the gospel. He wants them not to be afraid of those who mistreat them and persecute them. Rather, he wants them to see that their, their own suffering as a church is a gift from God, saying it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And here then he reflects on their partnership, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You start to see their partnership is characterized not by necessarily working in the same place, but by a like uh, endurance, a similar endurance, a similar suffering, a similar uh, pattern of their life. And so then this great... and incredible passage that we look to in uh, chapter 2 takes us from Paul's example to the example of Christ to show us that when we go through that pattern of suffering and steadfast faith and perseverance and restoration, we're doing what? We're just following uh, the, the greater example, the example that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an example that should inform the way that we think about one another and the way that we think about the work that we do. Paul goes on in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there's that idea of partnership again, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul calls them to a unity of mind, then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why would we do this? Why would we embrace this life where we humbly seek to serve others and we think about their interests and not primarily about our own interests? We don't prioritize numero uno, as some might say. We don't think about ourselves first and foremost, but rather we prioritize others because this reflects the mind of Christ. Verse 5, have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Just like we sang, may the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day, ever only always trusting in all I do and say. And every line in that lyric, every verse in that lyric reflects these same ideas. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It means that he really is God, and yet he didn't regard the fact that he's equal with God to be uh, something to be used for his own advantage, like a tool that you can grasp in your hand and use to improve your own situation. In his incarnate life as a man, he did not regard this fact of his equality, of the fact of his deity, as something to be used to his own advantage. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That word emptied himself does not mean that he put aside his divine being and ceased to be divine for a time. That would be impossible. But Paul actually explains what emptied himself means in the next line. He emptied himself by actually taking something, by taking to himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you see in the pattern of Christ's life is one further way of humbling himself to another further way of humbling himself. One greater act of service to an even greater act of service. He humbles himself by becoming incarnate and taking the form of a servant. He humbles himself in the form of a man. He humbles himself by, 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 uh, uh, by going even to a cross and dying for our sake. And verse 9 then, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we proclaim the gospel, we speak of this reality, that Christ came in our likeness, died for our sake, was raised from the grave, and ascended, and it was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He did not exalt himself in that way. Rather, God the Father exalted him to his right hand, and he humbled himself, trusting God to fulfill his word, to do what he promised, and exalt him to his right hand. And so if this is the gospel we proclaim, it also gives us the pattern for our life. Those in Paul's life who are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry and out of selfish ambition, they're proclaiming this gospel, but they're not living in accordance with this gospel. And so they're actually undermining in some sense what the gospel is meant to achieve in the life of Christians. Paul wants something better for the Philippians and for us. We should conform our lives not just to the pattern of thought and the mindset that Paul exemplifies, but also to the pattern that we see in the life of Christ. Trusting that at the proper time, God will exalt us also in his perfect way. Therefore, verse 12, Paul calls them saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul calls them to work, to do something, to, to, to live out this life of salvation, to go beyond merely saying, well, I'm saved by grace and I'm just going to go along doing the same thing I've always done, but actually work to grow in the likeness of Christ. And yet we remember what Paul said earlier, that his confidence is in the fact that the one who began a good work in them will continue it to the day of completion. And now he gives the basis for that command as he calls them to work out their salvation, he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who is at work in the Philippians. And that's the basis not for them to say, we don't have anything to do, but rather it's the basis for them to faithfully work, knowing that God is the one who's ultimately causing their work to flourish and to go forth. Examples of how Paul would have them do this are seen in what he says next. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't grumble amongst each other. You think of that language that, that characterizes what we see in the Gospel of Luke when people grumble because Jesus gathers with sinners and tax collectors. They're grumbling. 
because someone else is getting something that they think they don't deserve. And there's disputes Paul speaks about here. Don't, don't be given to grumbling. Don't be given to disputing. That's not consistent with a gospel-worthy life. Why? So you might be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, what Paul is saying, that by living this life of humility, they're like lights in the darkness. The generation in which we live, the world in which we live, is a dark place, a place that is filled with all kinds of rivalry and envy. But if we are a people, as Christians, who live not with disputes and grumbling, but rather seeking the best interests of others, we'll shine in that world like lights in a dark place. And if that's true of us to the end, then at the day of Christ Jesus, in the case of the Philippians, Paul can say, my labor in Philippi was not in vain. It was worth it because they persevered to the end. And the same thing can be said about us, that those who labor, have labored in your lives throughout your life, their labor would not be in vain if you pursue this pattern of life. Verse 17, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, that is, even if I'm to die for your sake, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I'm not going to read every bit of the next part of chapter 2. But I do want to give you a, a kind of synopsis of what we find there. Here, Paul is going to hold forth examples in, in Timothy's life and in Epaphroditus. I, I've told you how the examples that Paul holds forward are so important in his argument and in his, um, in, in his calls to the Philippians. They're to follow the examples of others who are demonstrating Christ-likeness, so that, and they are to follow the example of Christ himself. And Timothy and Epaphroditus stand forth as exceptional examples. Now here, Paul is simply giving him a report about his plans, what he plans to do, and, and, um, and, and who he plans to send to them, and he expresses in this text his gratitude that they sent Epaphroditus to him to serve his needs. That gives us a kind of a, a, a sense of what Paul was referring to in chapter 1 when he spoke about their partnership in the gospel. They expressed that partnership by sending a representative, Epaphroditus, to minister to Paul in his time of need. And Paul holds forward Timothy, and he holds forward Epaphroditus because they exemplify the virtues, they exemplify the principles that he's calling the Philippians to model themselves. Timothy is one who is a faithful servant. Verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy is recognized for his faithful service. Paul would say he has no one else like him, and he desires to send him to the Philippians to serve their needs. Epaphroditus, likewise, is characterized by not only his faithful service, but also his perseverance. Paul says, and we don't know exactly how, but he risked his life for Paul. And he, was even, he became sick in the course of this ministry, even near to death. But God was merciful and delivered him from that need. And so Epaphroditus becomes a model. He calls him a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a model of faithful, persevering, faithful uh, faithfulness in the cause of the gospel. We're to follow examples like that, whether we look to the scriptures and see them these examples in people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, or we see them in examples in our own day. People who put aside their own needs and their own desires and their own wants for the sake of serving the needs and desires of other people. That's what Timothy is. People who put aside their own safety and their own security for the sake of serving others. That's what Epaphroditus is. Now, as you flip ahead to chapter 3, Paul returns to his own example. And here again, he focuses on the way that he thinks in this life. We also see here that the Philippians, like so many other churches, like the Galatians, like the Romans, faced that very typical challenge that all of these early churches faced, namely that group that we call the Judaizers, those people who were seeking to say, uh, who were seeking to convince others that in order to be saved, it wasn't enough to simply have faith that one had to, had to be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses. And Paul tells the Philippians, watch out for these individuals. He calls them dogs and evildoers 
Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul does next is fascinating because you think about this idea of envy and rivalry. What Paul does is essentially record his own resume, his, what, what would qualify him if he were to live his life in that old mindset saying, we need to add something from our own personal resume in order to be qualified before God. That's not what the gospel-worthy life means. It's not a matter of depending upon our own good works or upon our own resume, even those works that are done in faith to which Paul's calling the Philippians to. That's not what it means. But there are many in that early context who are thinking this way, and they're calling many of the Christians to go back to a kind of Old Testament sort of faith that requires people to live in accordance with the law of Moses. So Paul's going to say, well, let's just do a little bit of mock boasting. Let's consider my resume, because I'll bet yours doesn't measure up to mine. That's the idea of what you find in chapter 3. He says this in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, from the Jewish perspective, from his old perspective and his old life, that was actually a virtue. He was zealous. He, he seemed to consider himself like Phineas, this example of zeal in the Old Testament, who, uh, who put to death an idolater, idolater and a man who was um, breaking covenant with the Lord. As to zeal, verse 6, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul could claim on his resume, under the law, in a sense, to be blameless. But then he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Is that, that, that word could be excrement. I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the hallmark of the gospel that we believe. We are justified by faith in Christ. Faith alone is not our righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes to us through faith in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness credited to our account. And if we believe that gospel, then there is no place for rivalry. Because what is rivalry but a comparing of resumes, of saying, I'm better than this person, I've done more than that person, I deserve more than them. That kind of attitude undermines a gospel work in a church. It undermines gospel partnership. It's not the kind of uh, attitude that lays our work on a foundation that is Christ. But rather, we lay it on ourselves as our own foundation, as we heard this morning from Luke's gospel. That is not a kind of work that can endure into eternity. Paul puts all of those things aside. He doesn't look back to those things. Why? Because in verse 10 he says, that I may know him, meaning Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Essentially what Paul is saying is, the pattern of my life, I want it to conform to the pattern of Christ's life. One of suffering, even of death, unto resurrection. And the way to find that, the way to get there, is by never turning back to my old way of trusting in my own work, but always fixing my eyes on Christ and pursuing him with a faith that endures to the end. That's the kind of life that Paul want, uh, aims for and the kind of life that he wants the Philippians to aim for as well. So he can go on to say in verse 12, not that I already have attained it, this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul does not look back to what he's done in his former life, neither does he look back to what he's done as, a, as an apostle and as a missionary for Christ. He's not relying on those things. They're not going to do anything further for him. They're in the past, but he looks forward. and He presses on. How? By fixing his eyes on Christ and every day in his life seeking to conform to the pattern of Christ, which involves humility, service, sacrifice, a willingness to suffer, For the sake of the gospel. A reliance not on his own strength. Not on his own merit. Not on his own work. But a reliance on God and the strength that God provides. In his grace. That's the life that Paul is describing here. As he talks about pressing on toward the goal of the prize. He wants the Philippians to have this same mind too. He says in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So you see that idea of example again. How important it is to look to those godly examples of people who willingly sacrifice their desires and their needs for the service of of others. For we'll find many who are not like that. As Paul says in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. What he said earlier in verse 27 through 30 of chapter 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul wants them to stand firm, not looking to those negative examples, people who stand as enemies of the cross, which I think would characterize the Judaizers he describes when he says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who would call upon Christians to add to their faith some kind of adherence to the law of Moses in order to be justified. Watch out for those enemies of the cross. They are on their way to destruction. And their minds are then set on earthly things. But your citizenship is in heaven. You are a member of the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. And so Paul's calling the Philippians and he's calling us to live like citizens of that kingdom. Just like citizens of a nation to accomplish some great goal must unite in their minds and their hopes and their desires. We must be united in the purposes of that kingdom which are exemplified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim what he accomplished for us and the salvation and justification that comes through faith in him. We must conform our lives also to that same pattern of life. Now then when we come to chapter 4, we see some of the specific reasons why Paul would say all of these things. I entreat Euodia, this is verse 2 of chapter 4. I I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Just like we saw that word in verse 1 of chapter 4, stand firm, earlier when Paul called upon the Philippians in chapter 1 to stand firm in one spirit, that word labored side by side is the same thing that we see in chapter 1 when Paul calls upon them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word's the same. Paul is recognizing that these women began well. They labored side by side with him in the gospel, and yet they're having a division. They're having some kind of fight. And it's undermining their participation in the gospel, and it's affecting the whole church. Paul's calling upon them to agree. To, to settle those differences, to 
exemplify that kind of humble service that he's called all, the whole Philippian church to, to, to demonstrate, that they might continue the way they started and fulfill their calling as members in the body of Christ. He wants them to put aside those divisions through humble, sacrificial service and love toward one another, that trusts in Christ and Christ alone. Most likely, these women, because of their labor and because of their service, felt like they deserved something, were themselves given to some sort of rivalry and envy, desiring some sort of place in the church, some sort of prominence, and they both weren't able to have that. We don't know precisely the details of it, but likely the things that Paul says reflect that that's the source of the problem. That can really happen uh, very easily in a church where, as we heard this morning, this call to be faithful servants of our Lord, as we embrace that call, it's easy along the way to start saying, oh, I'm a pretty good servant of the Lord. And uh, look at me, look at how, what I'm accomplishing, and I deserve some sort of acclaim and some sort of prominence. And so we stop looking toward the reward of that well-done, good and faithful servant at the day of Christ, and we start looking to the reward of the praise of men. And what happens is rivalry and envy. And it undermines our service. We're no longer serving in a faithful way. That seems to be what ha- is happening in Philippi. Paul's calling them to a different way of thinking that will lead to a different way of acting that will reflect a true partnership for the sake of the gospel. He says then in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's what he calls the Philippians to do set their minds on those heavenly, eternal things that are honorable and just, to pursue peace, to be reasonable, to be agreeable with one another, not anxious or given to worry, but given to prayer and thanksgiving and supplication and so on and so forth, a kind of life that follows from this attitude of humility, this attitude of service. It's what he calls the whole church to, even as he calls those particular women to settle their differences and live at peace and in unity once more. Finally, at the end of this text, I won't read all of it, but Paul addresses one more uh, more part of their gospel partnership. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Yours and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what Paul does here then is he recognizes their partnership in, a, in, a, in the peculiar way where they've sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift. And just as, as at first, when they supported him in his needs, now again they've revived their concern and they continue to support him in his needs. They, he commends them for this. He confesses that he, in some sense, doesn't really need it. He's learned to get along uh, with plenty or with little says that memorable phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not so that athletes could quote it after they hit home runs, 
but so that they would know that he can endure all things. He can go through all kinds of suffering through Christ who strengthens me. But notice what he says to them. But I'm glad of the gift because it's a, a kind of credit to your account. I'm glad for your sake, for your ability to be a partner with me in the work that I am doing. And it's a good thing that we can consider as well for us as God gives us opportunity to partner with others who are engaged in gospel works in other places. It's an important part of what we do as a church, to engage in the cause of missions as we've had opportunity to commit to as a church last week at our, our members' meeting and, and to commit to going forward. These are important ways in which we partner in the work of the gospel as a church. But as we do those things, we need to reflect on all that Paul's written in this letter and remind ourselves that it's not just about writing a check It's not just about sending a missionary. It's not just about getting up behind a pulpit and preaching a sermon or having an evangelistic um, uh, effort to reach people with the gospel message. But it's also about letting our lives be conformed to that gospel by living lives according to those principles which Paul has set before us in this letter. Principles of humility, principles of service, principles of self-sacrifice, and steadfastness, principles that we saw and we see in the lives of Timothy, Epaphroditus, of Paul, of Christ himself. That's the gospel-worthy life to which we call. We are called, not because it makes us somehow worthy of salvation, but because it conforms to the pattern of our salvation, and it represents a true and abiding faith in Christ. So as we think about our life together as a church, let us reflect on these things and resolve in our lives to commit to that kind of gospel-worthy life by seeking unity with one another according to these principles that are informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed finish what you've started in our lives. Continue that work that you began right to the day of Christ Jesus. May we indeed on that day be found in him, not seeking that righteousness that comes through our works, but that righteousness that comes alone through faith. You, O Lord, are the only one who can complete this work, and we know and trust that you are faithful to complete it. So as we trust that, help us, in fact, Lord, to strive toward that end, not striving because we think we have the strength in ourselves, but because we trust that you will complete what you started. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.